Welcome to Adventures in North Wales from Go North Wales. I'm Megan Llyn and in this series we're exploring more of North Wales with its world-leading outdoor adventure activities, brilliant beaches, thrilling mountain scenery, thriving food and drink industry and fascinating ancient culture and heritage. In this episode, North Wales has some truly wonderful historic buildings and structures. There are more castles here per square mile than anywhere else in the world. So let's take a look at just a few of the heritage sites on offer. We'll find out more about the industry that put North Wales on the map. It is one of the best slates in the, yes, in the world, actually. Um, the quality of it. It was a very, very harsh industry, but a very, very close-knit community as well. I'll shout, get me out of here! At a Welsh castle that has become a TV star in its own right. Well, it's like a fairy tale castle. Yeah. And it's what you would imagine as a child, what a fairy tale castle would look like. It's just amazing. But first, we're beginning today in the east of the region at Llangollen and an extraordinary structure that has to be seen to be believed. This is the UNESCO World Heritage Site Pont Cysylltau Aqueduct. With me today is Joe Pickerton, who is the destination manager. Hiya, Joe. Hi, good morning. So tell me about the aqueduct. Why is it here? Well, the aqueduct is um, part of an 11-mile World Heritage Site, which we have here in North Wales. Um, it really, it's the jewel in the crown of the 11-mile site, and it's the one that everyone obviously flocks to each year to visit. Um, it's probably one of our most historic attractions here in North Wales, um, built in 1805. And, you know, each year, uh, we're just astounded by the amount of visitors who come to see it, either on the way into North Wales or they come here for a day out. It is a stunning location as well. You're surrounded by trees and this beautiful little valleys and of course the little boats that are around it's almost like you've got a community of boats here it's fantastic yeah this is actually a base where a lot of people start their holidays from as well so not only do we get a lot of day visitors uh, a lot of people come and hire the boats from here as well and take them off down the Clangothan canal down to Ellesmere and so on it's lovely can I ask what does Pont Cysylltau mean um, Pankasutte is a Welsh word for bridge over water um, to, a, to a rough extent. Ah. Um, so a lot of people do also call it the, the Frankasutte um, aqueduct, which is the village on the other side. Um, but officially it's the Pankasutte aqueduct. And how long is it? Well, the, the Pankasutte aqueduct is a magnificent structure. Lengthwise, it's just over 300 metres at 307 metres long. And height, it's 126 foot, which makes it the tallest in Europe. Um, so... You know, in terms of navigating across it, you get a lot of boaters who are quite timid about it. But yeah. when you're up there in the middle, the views are just breathtaking. You mentioned it was built in 1805. That's quite a long time ago. But who was the designer behind it? It was. It was actually started in 1795 and finished in 1805. So a whole 10 year build. A lot of people will know Thomas Telford from his work at Ironbridge and also over at the Menai Bridge in Anglesey. Uh, and Thomas Telford actually had a house just underneath here in the valley where he could actually look up every day and watch the progress of the aqueduct being built. What is it made of then? The aqueduct is, strangely enough, it's actually constructed um, with ox blood. So ox blood holds the stones together. Uh, and from there, um, you know, that's how it's been constructed and, and held together for more than 200 years. So it's built from local stone from the quarry over in Kevermower. And then the iron trough, which carries the boats across, um, was actually kind of used from a foundry over in Kevermower as well. Sadly, Joe, the full canal route was never finished, though. 
Yeah, um, the, the actual canal route, um, this is a, an actual basin, um, but it did actually used to go up to the village of Kevin Mower, um, but the tunnel is now filled in. But uh, the canal actually starts at the Horseshoe Falls down in Clangothlin, um, so it's a beautiful spot, and that's actually the start of the World Heritage Site as well. Uh, and then obviously if you follow the canal throughout the 11 miles, it continues off down to Shropshire and out into Cheshire and Birmingham that way as well. The canal was closed and fell into disrepair following the Second World War. How was it saved? Well, after the, uh, after the war, um, the canal was still used to kind of transport heavy goods such as coal uh, from the local um, quarries around here. But as we kind of like moved on after the war, it started to become more and more of a leisure and tourism destination, um, which is kind of what makes it so popular nowadays. Uh, obviously, through a, a tourism perspective, um, it's one of our key attractions here in North Wales, simply because of all the things you can do on the water, on the towpath, and, you know, from a photography point of view, isn't it just spectacular? It really really is stunning here and I can imagine how excited people are to come visit but you really do have hundreds of thousands of visitors a year what can they see and do here so many people come here just to marvel at the engineering and and as we can see here today you know the beautiful views down the valley towards Clangothlin but throughout the whole 11 miles uh, more and more so we're getting a lot of obviously leisure boaters but also paddle sports enthusiasts so again you might come here one day and there'll be a, a group of canoeists or paddle boarders um, and throughout the whole 11 miles between Clangothlin and, and Chirk there's such a kind of you know um, use of the the canal from many different things even fishing as well you know there's a lot of um, fishing enthusiasts and anglers um, people come to use the towpath for exercise which is again you know such a beautiful thing to do in the outdoors um, families come for cycling they might go off into Timar Country Park underneath here as well so you know the canal really kind of links communities together and it also gives people, you know, some, you know, a number of reasons to explore uh, and have a great day out. You mentioned the towpath. Now, where does that take you? The towpath is fully concreted right between Gledred down in Shropshire uh, and up here in, in Clangothlin. So you can actually travel the full 11 miles, um, you know, if you've got a um, wheelchair or if you're on a bike uh, or if you are a runner. If you just want a nice, flat, smooth surface, it's absolutely perfect. No mud at all. Perfect running conditions. Absolutely perfect, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, people here with livelihoods with the boats and stuff, but can you just hire a boat if you just wanted it for the weekend, maybe? Yes, um, there's a base here, um, which is run by the operator Anglo-Welsh. Um, so we've actually done it several times as a family, and, uh, and even our, our um, team in work have done it. Uh, and it's about um, £120 just to hire for the day. Uh, you tend to get it between nine and five, um, and it's a great day out if you just want you know, something different to do on the canal. Uh, you don't need any experience. Quite often it's interesting to watch people pull off who've never driven a canal boat before. <laughs> But very quickly, once they cross this aqueduct, they get the hang of it. Well, in this podcast, we're looking at some of the heritage buildings and structures across North Wales. Where else should we visit now then, Joe? It's such a plethora of places to kind of visit across North Wales. However, if you're looking at industrial heritage, definitely go and see the, the Menai Bridge crossing the Menai Straits. You know, again, another Thomas Telford construction and the one which if you look at it from the, the river banks or if you go underneath it on one of the, the rib ride boats, absolutely spectacular. <laughs> Wales Expressway is the main route that cuts through from Chester in the east all the way to Holyhead on Anglesey in the west. It probably is one of the most scenic major road routes in the UK. 
just off the A55 at Abergele is this incredible historic structure that you'll no doubt be familiar with. Grich Castle, the home of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here 2020. I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Mark Baker, who is an architectural historian and the founder of Grich Castle Preservation Trust. As castles go, Mark, this is pretty impressive. But tell us first off, what does Grich mean? So Grich translates as the, the bristles on the back of a boar, and it comes from medieval Welsh history. Um, that there was a great boar that was hunted and it lay down to hide. And it's supposed to be the whole hillside is supposed to represent this great hog. So that's what Grich relates to. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. But so we now know the history behind the name. Who built it and why was Grich Castle built? So there's been a house on the site for nearly a thousand years. And it was the home of the Lloyds of Grich, who were descended from the noble tribes of Wales the part of the Welsh royal family, really. And um, very important in terms of being defensive. It's where Richard II was captured in 1399, going from Conway to, um, to Flint Castle. And then around about 1810, um, one of the descendants, Lloyd Hesketh, Bamford Hesketh, had um, a dream of building a castle. So he had this medieval building that he started to reconstruct. And it was the first real attempt at building medieval castles for nearly six or seven hundred years at that point. So incredibly important in terms of its architectural history. And more recently, it also played a part in the kinder transports, helping Jewish children escape Europe during the Second World War. Am I right? Yes. Yes. So during the Second World War, um, it was a home to about 250 Jewish refugee children. And they were at the castle um, for about two years or so, but it saved their lives and it was one of the last trains out of Nazi Germany that managed to escape. So we had a reunion in 2018 of the survivors. Most of them are in their 90s now, but um, it's it's got an amazing history. You kind of, yeah. there's just so much to it. Such rich history and it's still standing here strong, but I am aware it kind of fell into disrepair in the last few years and obviously, this is your life's work, bringing Greer Castle back to life. Um, you were campaigning from the age of 12, I heard. Yeah, so it's a bit bit weird looking back, but um, I started the, the campaign to save the castle when I was about 12. I had my first book published when I was 13, and you know, 20 years later, um, we managed to purchase the castle. What? Um, but it was a ruin um, in the 1990s and um, New Age travellers had moved in and started to asset strip the building. So um, as a kid, I used to go up and play there and saw all the destruction and then just thought I could do something to try and help. And then here we are. You know, it's a very strange journey, but it's been really fascinating to kind of understand how the building was built and who lived there and so on. You just kind of fall in love with these places. and. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about preserving it for the next generation. And, um, you know, my big aim has been to get public access back. So about opening it back up to the public, but it also needs to wash its face. So it's such a massive um, undertaking that it needs to be financially sustainable. So by opening it to paying guests and visitors, you know, it enables people to enjoy it, but also um, keep it going. And obviously in 2020, um, 
It was a home for a few celebs, I heard. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. It was filmed in Greich Castle. And, you know, it must have turned the castle into an absolute national treasure. Are you seeing the benefits of being associated with one of the biggest entertainment shows on UK TV? I would say so, yes. I think it's certainly raised the profile of the castle, but it's also opened it to new audiences as well, those who wouldn't necessarily go and visit a historic attraction. And it kind of probably gave it that platform to the UK, especially like you have amazing, rich, historical castles right here, just on your doorstep in Wales, you know? Totally. I think it's just reminded people what we've got in the UK, particularly in Wales, is amazing. And there's so much to see and do. So um, anyone listening to this, I do encourage you to come and visit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But tell us, like, how on earth did it come about that I'm a celeb? Because I remember hearing about it first off and I was like, that can't be true. But how did it come about that they were going to film in, in Greich Castle? So I thought it was a spam email at first. I ignored <laughs> it. So it was a couple of emails later that I thought, oh, wow, it might be something to, to look at. Because there was a lot of secrecy about the show. Because um, I've never seen the show until it came to the castle. You'd never seen it before? No. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in... We're currently at the Beach House, which is part of the castle estate. And it was in this room that we all sat down and discussed what the plans were. And um, So am I thinking, has Anton Deck sat in this chair that I'm sitting right now? Possibly. Oh! <laughs> so it was all it was all very bizarre and it was on a knife edge until the last moment because they were hoping to go back to Australia and then all the borders shut. And um, they had to make a decision. So within 24 hours in August, it was decided that they would would come to the castle. And did you ever get to meet Anton Deck? And what did they think of, you know, North Wales? Had they been before or? I think they had been before, but they loved it. And there was such a welcome. All the local shops had kind of decorations and they had cobbled cutouts of Anton Deck. And um, it was a real time of celebration and it gave people Again, this lifeline, something to hope, you know, for better times, a bit of escapism during those dark days. Yeah, I can I can definitely relate. I love watching Vernon Kay doing all those, you know, and Jordan North loved him. But what can visitors see when they come to the castle? And, you know, are any of the remains of I'm a celeb still here? I'm not talking about you know, Shane Ritchie, more the set um, dressing they fitted the castle out with kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot, lot remaining. And um, we're in talks with ITV now about doing like an I'm a Celebrity guidebook in a trail. Um, so around the different parts of the set. So um, you can see the privy. Oh my. And you can see the um, the shop, Cledwin's shop. It's amazing. And we've got the throne and various other artefacts that survived. So it's it's kind of become an attraction of its own. It's another chapter in the castle's illustrious and long history. I love that. Another chapter in the castle's history. So does that mean is the phone box still there? It is. Oh, how exciting. So what is next for Greer Castle then, Matt? I think getting a roof on it is the <laughs> is the big plan. Um but we've got there's about two hundred and fifty acres of 
park and gardens that we're restoring. Um, there's nine miles of paths and it's all part of this experience of visiting um, a picturesque landscape. And there's like caves and cottages and um, towers on the hill and so on. Um, so it's not just the castle, but it's its whole kind of setting that we're trying to rescue as well. It's a lifetime's work. It's unmissable. The North Wales Expressway, you know, drives straight past it. And I remember passing as a kid and just saying, oh, it's the castle, it's the castle. It's it's so flamboyant almost in its well, castle-ness. Well, it's like a fairy tale <laughs> castle. Yeah. And it's what you would imagine in as a child, what yeah. a fairy tale castle would look like. It's just amazing. I think it's well worth a visit. Absolutely. Me too, Mark. Well, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. I know you're a very busy man. Thank you very much. This is Adventures in North Wales from Go North Wales. I'm Mekanthin and we've travelled west to the coastal town of Llanditno. I'm standing here in Vaughan Street in front of a fabulously decorative Edwardian building, which is the home of the Mostyn Contemporary Art Gallery. Let's head inside. Hi, are you Lynn? Hello, yes I am. Hi. Hi Megan, welcome to Mustin. Thank you so much for having us. So Lynn Cummings, you are the audience relations manager here. So how did this gallery come to be here in Llanditna? So it was commissioned by Lady Augusta Mostyn of the famous Mostyn family. Um, it was commissioned in 1901 and I believe it opened in 1902. Um, originally she built the gallery as a space for a range of different things to take place. So classes, gallery, exhibition spaces, talks, um, all kinds of things. And it was called the School of Art, Science and Technical Classes in its early days. One of the groups that Lady Augusta showed here was the Gwyneth Ladies Art Society, who were a group of women who were very um, talented painters, but they weren't allowed to show in local societies because back in the day it was very male-dominated and women weren't really considered suitable to be shown in galleries. So Lady Augusta gave them a space here um, for a couple of years and then um, we believe that she asked them to leave. So it's a bit of a soap opera in the making. Oh, really? Mm. This gallery has been quite prominent in the history of women in art then, you'd say? It certainly played its role at the time, I think. I think it was one of the first galleries to show female artists, certainly in Wales and possibly in the UK. So throughout its history, more in the contemporary time, really, um, we, we do show a lot of female artists. We had two exhibitions that were called Women's Art Society that were based on the heritage of the gallery when Lady Augusta showed the Gwyneth Ladies. So we, we combined historical paintings from the Gwyneth Ladies Art Society with contemporary female artists. Oh, wow. Um, so we did two exhibitions. One was about female artists. The other one was about exclusion. So, you know, lots of people are excluded for lots of different reasons yeah. these days. It's not just women. So we've tried to carry forward that heritage in the, the exhibitions that we've shown more recently. So what can visitors see when they visit the Moston Gallery? I do love it when people walk through the main doors and they have a bit of a wow because it's not what you expect when you walk behind the original exterior. You come into this award-winning contemporary, quite brutalist architecture, really. It won a Reba Award when it was um, renovated and extended in 2010. It definitely has that wow factor. 
So the first thing they'll see is the lovely shop when they come in. People do travel for quite a long way to come to the shop. People travel from all over the world to come to the gallery because the exhibitions we show are of international standard. Um, people have said, wow, you know, this is like the Tate. It's like the Tate Gallery in North Wales. And the, <laughs> the Tate's Gallery the Tate of North Wales. Wales. Love that. Uh, although so we like to say that the Tate is the Mostyn Gallery of <laughs> England. <laughs> Um, but also the original Edwardian galleries. The Guardian labelled them the most beautiful gallery spaces in the UK. The two galleries that you see when you come into the main spaces are the original Edwardian galleries. And then we've got some more contemporary gallery spaces that were extended into. So what do you have planned for the future for the gallery? Um, well, obviously, this is 2020 was a difficult year. We were closed quite a lot of the time. But we, like a lot of galleries and a lot of businesses, we kind of pivoted our work to the online space mm. and we've found that we've managed to reach thousands more people yeah. that way but we never want that to become a sort of substitute for actually coming to a gallery because yeah. I mean yeah. you know people somebody emailed me recently and said I can't wait for Austin to, to open again I feel like a plant that hasn't been watered for a year oh. and that's a really nice thing to yeah. hear but people have really strong affections and connections to Austin um, so into the future, what we're doing for the spring, summer, we're extending the exhibitions that we have to close over the winter. So we'll be extending them until June. And then beginning of July, we've got a French artist called Tarek Lacrisi. It's his first UK solo exhibition, so it's a big deal. And from what I see of the pictures, it's going to be a real stunner. It's going to be quite awesome in the gallery spaces. And then upstairs... We've got a little gallery upstairs and that's going to be uh, taken over by the Mobile Feminist Library, which is carrying on that tradition of um, the sort of heritage of the building. So you've got a lot of exciting things yeah. in the pipeline. Yeah. Can I ask, um, how much is it to visit? It's free. It's free, free? to come in. Yes. All of that for free? That's All amazing. That free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really important to us that we do keep it free. Yeah. Because... There's a lot of people locally who don't have a whole lot of money. You know, people think that galleries are really expensive and not really for them, not yeah. accessible because they have to pay. But you don't have to pay to come to Mostyn. It's a really nice way to spend a couple of hours, an hour, even if you don't think you really like art, you know. Thousands and thousands of people come to Clandidno in the summer and sometimes it rains. <laughs> you know, it's something that you can do inside that doesn't cost anything and... Don't worry about bringing your kids because we're really child-friendly and we find that kids experience art in a really different way. Yeah. And they really love it. And sometimes they're explaining to their parents what they think it's about, which is just lovely. Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for having a chat with us. This really is an amazing space. I'm going to have a good look around before we delve into North Wales industrial history. Now that's a sound that's very familiar here in North Wales and it's one of the major reasons for the area's economic success back in the day. This is Carwin. He's a quarryman and he's splitting the slate at the National Slate Museum in Llanberis. Carwin, can I steal you away from the slates for one second? Can I ask, how do you do it so precisely? Like, how did you learn this trade? It was five years apprenticeship and many years of practice and experience behind it. Would you go as far to say that you're an expert in this field now? Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to work on the slates here. We might head off to the cafe and have 
a word with Julie, if that's okay. We'll just head along here. Julie Williams, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to have a chat with us. This building is magnificent. It's the National Slate Museum. It's stunning. Well, it was built originally as the engineering workshops for the quarry. So everything that was needed to keep the quarry going was produced here. So we had engineers, you had carpenters, you had blacksmiths who were able to make all the wagons and the tools and everything that would be then used to get the slate out to the rest of the world from this quarry. So today, you know, that's what we're trying to portray is the story of those men and the quarrying communities that they left behind, really. Yes, yes. So I can imagine it was a busy place to work. How many, you know, men worked here at one point? Well, up in the quarry itself, obviously that was the busiest place. You'd have over 3,000 men and boys (gasps) at the peak of the industry. Um, And here, obviously, on site, there were a lot fewer people who worked here. But it was said, if you found, you would find work up in the quarries, but you would find your place here in the engineering workshops. Okay. And obviously it was a much safer place to work than up in the quarry as well. Yeah. Um, and the expertise of the men here as well. I feel like the history of just this area that we're in now in Llanberis is very much intertwined with, you know, the, the museum itself, isn't it? A lot of families have had fathers and grandfathers working here oh i think any of the slate quarrying communities in wales you you can't miss you know that that it's a slate industry um but yes obviously you know the families were very important to keep everything going and we've got the quarrymen's houses here as well where you can glimpse into that life you know the different things that they would have to do and the the small nature of the houses and how compact things would have to be and how many people would live in one house at a time we have lodges in in one of the little houses where today you wouldn't think of putting more than one or two people so yes yeah a very different lifestyle and a very close community um so when were the quarrymen replaced with machines not until you know um last century really um you know the oh, middle that's quite late yes definitely and still today there's the actual slate splitting can only be done by hand yeah. um you know which is something that surprises our our visitors on a daily basis yeah um but obviously things like trimming the slates that was replaced by machinery um quite early on um but yes it is you know it's, it's still a craftsman's thing to do yes to, to yeah. get that slate produced to the proper size really and i assume the slate from from this quarry was carried all over the world it's welsh slate is so famous isn't it and this quarry itself was huge at one point well this quarry is the second largest the largest is penryn quarry over in bethesda which is still a working quarry today and still exporting um, to various parts of the world, you know, taking Welsh slate to parts of the world that need it, because it is one of the best slates in, yes, in the world. Welsh and, slate. <laughs> um, the quality of it. Can I ask, when was the first slate mined here then? Well, there's evidence that slate was used even in Roman times, because there was slate on top of the Sagontian buildings in Canarvon. Oh, right. When the Romans were here, but... Not until the late 1700s was quarrying undertaken on an industrial level. Yeah. Um, and then obviously in the 1800s, middle of the, um, the Industrial Revolution, it, you know, expanded. Boomed, yeah, didn't and it? absolutely yeah. boomed at that time. Tell me, what can visitors do and see here today then? If visitors are coming to the museum today, they can enjoy a slate splitting demonstration with one of our craftsmen, which is always the most enjoyable bit. 
um, and you know just to see how a piece of slate is is split into the the roofing slates that we use today but we've also got our quarrymen's houses where you can walk around different periods of the slate industry and all the the engineering workshops as well and there's you know, there's events and activities as well going on throughout the year and exhibitions. So there's always something different to see. You also have the largest working water wheel in mainland Britain, I hear. Well, we do. Our water wheel, it, it, you know, it's massive. <laughs> it's like, enormous. It's over 15 metres wide. Um, and it was built specially for this building. And it would have powered, you know, it was water power at its best, really, because it powered a lot of machinery on site. Such an innovative industry as well, you know, that they could see that these things could work together and, you know, by doing these things that they could function independently as well. So what would conditions have been like for the workers back in the day? been quite hard I can imagine I think they were you know very very hard we think it's quite a chilly day today and, and just being outside for a little while but they would have had to walk to work before even starting their, their work as well um, there were quite a few people coming over from Anglesey who would stay in the barracks so they would leave on a Sunday evening um, and then obviously working outside all the time with in very cold conditions with very cold slate and rock as well um, I think the, the fact that there's a hospital only five minutes away is testament to how dangerous it yes, was. Yes, of course. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of industry also breeds a very close community. Um, and they were a very cultured community as well. You know, they would always be finding things to do and they enjoyed their esteadvods. You know, yes. for example, in the cabans, they would enjoy their esteadvods and they would be carving just to demonstrate their craft, really, yeah. carving the slate fans and different things like that. So I think, you know, it was a very, very harsh industry, but a very, very close-knit community as well. Yes, yes. We're hoping this summer to have World Heritage status for the North Wales late industry, which will really seal how important this industry was, really, yeah. you know, with everything everything that you see in North Wales, really, nowadays, the railways and, and ourselves and the different establishments that have something to do with slate. You know, it's touched a lot of lives. float on the Menai Strait between mainland Wales and Anglesey and we are directly underneath the suspension bridge that is the main road route onto the island. Tom Ashwell from Rib Ride is with us. Hi Tom, this is a wonderful way to see the bridge, don't you think? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> We're literally just underneath it. This is the bit you never get to see. <laughs> exactly. So, Tom, the tides are really quite strong here. How did people reach Anglesey before this stunning bridge? You would wait until a slack point in the tide, so the mid, mid-range between the tide, and just bob back and forth by boat. And there were a number of crossings uh, right across from Clathen Sands, from Pomaris, from this point here, and further down the strait, Moila Don, uh, Velen Heli. There's all sort of little areas where they had little, little slipways and jetties and ferry boats going back and forth. And just experienced ferry, ferry boatmen. Um, up at the Gazelle Hotel, there was an old chain ferry, so the boat would lay a chain on the bottom and they would pull themselves across on the chain ferry. And actually, this point was where the uh, drovers used to bring cattle across. Really? Yes. 
So they would drop the cattle in at this point and force them to swim across, and then hopefully they would all come out on the other side. Wow, that's incredible. This is the narrowest point, so that was the reason they chose it. And obviously they wouldn't have used the point right now, so uh, obviously the, the current is flowing pretty hard now. Any, any cow in the water now is gone. She'll be an island by yeah. breakfast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So why did it suddenly become really important that there was a bridge here? I think there was a communications requirement for Ireland to get the mail packet back and forth. And also there was a necessity to be able to mobilise troops, which is the sort of the dark side of the, of the bridges, perhaps. And uh, to get to Hollyhead, uh, which was a big protected harbour, this was built at the same time that the massive break wall that was built at, at Hollyhead to protect uh, the, the shipping there. Um, and then that was the shortest route across to Ireland. It's honestly such a, an impressive structure, isn't it? When was this bridge built? 1826. 1826. It was the world's largest suspension bridge when it was built, wasn't it? Yes. Am I right? In yeah, that? and as I understand it, there were at, at similar times uh, they were connecting Manhattan with with the mainland in New York. And the engineers came and surveyed this bridge to understand how they were going to do that, make that connection. So it's an inspiration. So it's for... an inspiration for <laughs> Americans. Look at that! Isn't that amazing? That's quite a claim, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Now that I'm sat on the boat, just directly underneath it, obviously when you're driving across, you don't really get and grasp how huge it is and just like the the magnitude of the bridge. The design parameters for both this bridge and and Britannia Bridge behind us, because Britannia Bridge doesn't look anything like it looks like now. It was it was a similar flat bottom bridge yeah. if you wanted to try it. So you they wanted a bridge with no arches because as you can see right now, we've got a huge amount of current. So we've got probably eight to ten miles an hour of water pushing down under the bridge. And you don't need a ship to, to have to pinpoint to go through an arch, yeah. you know, if it's got a mast, it's got to be able to tack its way through if it's if it's sailing. So they needed to, to build this new concept of the mm. suspension bridge to give this flat bottom to allow the ships to pass through easily. I mean, it's in a really good nick as well, isn't it? Considering how old it is. It always surprises me that, you know, there's nobody down sort of pointing the, the joints or replacing any stone. Yeah. And that this water's pouring past on a daily basis. I mean, it's pouring so hard, you can see that the water is higher on one side of that yes, pier than it yeah. is on the other. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lick of paint goes on it occasionally. Uh, and actually, as you're lucky enough, there are some chaps up there working, swinging off ropes freely above the Menai Straits, <laughs> doing some maintenance work where they're just uh, taking out some of the pavement area, I believe, mm. and just checking some of the steel work underneath. So you wait for one and two come along at once, almost like buses. It wasn't long before a second bridge was built across the strait. Yes. So uh, the restriction of this bridge was that it, it wouldn't deal with the whole new concept of the train. Okay. And that's perhaps where Telford missed, missed the boat, if we like to use <laughs> that one. Uh, brilliant engineer, not really had much faith in this, this whole, you know, oh, the train never catch on. And of course, there were, that was the next it thing. Did, you, yeah. would, you, would, had to, you had to get off a of Bangor station and you'd have to take uh, alternative transport to get onto the island and therefore get up to, to Hollyhead. So uh, Stevenson came in and built Britannia Bridge. And that's uh, where the train and that was. The tr crosses. That was a train bridge only at the time. So apart from here on the rib ride, 
we're very lucky to be here. Where's the best place to view the bridge? I think actually there's, uh, if you come into Menai Bridge and um, walk down past our Ribride offices, so that's Water Street, and that will bring you right down onto the waterfront along some of the old marine buildings uh, along the front. And there's a, there's a green area, which we can just see over there yes. to the left. And that's a fantastic place to come and view the bridge. And actually, you've got a lovely circular walk from there because then you can walk under the bridge. It'll take you down onto Belgian Prom, which is this promenade area. Yeah, um, I see uh, it. Beautiful church with its, on its own island. And then you come up through a set of woods at the back of, well, what's now Waitrose. So you can pick up your lunch <laughs> while you're there. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I've got a feeling we may be chatting with you again on the next episode of this podcast as we're looking at the adrenaline adventures across North Wales. So see you soon. I will see you then. I hope that has given you a flavour of the heritage on offer here in North Wales. There's so much more to explore too. Head to gonorthwales.co.uk to find out. Remember to hit subscribe and rate the podcast. From me, Megathleen, on the Menai Strait. Hopefully see you soon here in North Wales. Pwylfawr! Cool